Well, good to see few of you here today. All of you, but all of you together make up few. In case you're not a regular attender, this is a little bit lean in terms of attendance today. But uh, that's because they heard Kevin wasn't preaching. And so they were taking the opportunity to visit other churches, I think. Maybe, or else maybe they just are out of town. That's more likely. Um, so Barb is going to stay at the piano. Right, Barb? Are you there? Where'd Barb go? <laughs> Here she comes. And um, would you pass out this song? A couple of songs this morning that you might not know. Uh, this one came to me yesterday in a kind of an epiphany, really. I was lying there on the futon in my home office and thinking about the sermon this morning, the ideal church, and just kind of wondering, maybe asking God for a hymn that would really talk about the ideal church. Because as I'm going to tell you, and as you already know, there is no such thing on earth. Now, I've been a member or regular attender of 12 churches in my 71 years. Now, that might sound like a lot to you, but I'm really old, and so moved around a lot from church to church, you know, city to city, so therefore church to church, 12 churches, always looking for the perfect church. I don't know if you've had that experience. I've never found it. And of course, as the old saying goes, if you find the perfect church, don't join it. You know why, right? Because then it won't be perfect anymore. So there is no such thing as the perfect church if I'm in it. And maybe that's true for you, too. I was thinking as I was laying there about hymns, and an old hymn came to me that I haven't sung since I was probably a kid or a teenager. You may not know it at all, but Barb and I are going to teach it to you. And um, it's called A Glorious Church, and it's based on Ephesians 5.27. Ephesians 5.27. I'm going to look that up right now and read it to you. So Ephesians 5.27. Paul writing to the Christians in Ephesus, and he says, So as to present the church to himself, this is talking about Jesus, in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. Now, that's talking about the church of the future. The church when Jesus comes back. Then we'll have the perfect church, the ideal church. So let's stand, because it's easier to sing, I think, when we're standing, especially this kind of song. This is a revival song. This was contemporary 130 years ago when I was a teenager. So let's sing it with gusto, okay? She's going to play it through all the way once. first verse. Do you hear them coming, brother, thronging up the steeps of light, clad in glorious shining garments, blood-washed garments pure and white? Tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. 
this church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I don't know about any of you Mennonites. When I was growing up, we clapped our hands on the chorus. So if you feel comfortable clapping your hands, do it. It's okay. All right, second verse. Do you hear the stirring anthems filling all the earth and sky? Tis a grand victorious army lift its banner up on high. Tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle washed in the blood of the Lamb. Tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Never fear the clouds of sorrow, never fear the storms of sin. We shall triumph on the morrow, even now our joys begin. Tis a glorious church, without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Tis a glorious church, without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Wave the banner, shout his praises, for our victory is nigh. Shall join our conquering Savior. We shall reign with Him on high. Tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Thank you. You may be seated. And thank you for singing that song with me. I've wanted to sing that song with a congregation for a long time, and I guess nobody sings it anymore. Although I found it on YouTube, I guess quite a few churches are singing it on YouTube anyway. I love to go to YouTube and look up certain churches or just hymns and listen to them singing a lot of Mennonite choirs and churches on YouTube. And they sing a lot of the songs I grew up singing. This is something that I heard a long time ago that stuck in my mind. To live with saints above, that will be glory. But to live with saints below, well, that's a different story. In case you didn't get it, I'll do it, say it again. To live with saints above, that will be glory. To live with saints below, well, that's a different story. I don't know if you've had that experience, but I have. My dad was a pastor when I was growing up and beyond my growing up. He pastored for 52 years. And I, I knew way too much about the churches because he would talk to my mother about the churches at home. They were in succession, not at the same time. And he would tell her all the stuff that was going on in the church, and I would listen in as close as I could. And then I decided to become a theologian so I could help with this. But I'm not sure that worked out quite that way. There's so much confusion about the church. Just listening to my students and others talk about church, 
both in secular society and among Christians. If you listen carefully, there's just a lot of confusion about what church means. Of course, we know it's not the building. This is a nice building. We enjoy it. We're glad we have it, but it's not the church. So a building is not the church. Of course, Christian entertainment like concerts are not the church. People think of church when they hear church as boring, maybe. Sometimes I've had people say to me, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. My stock answer to that is it takes a smaller person to hide behind a hypocrite than to be a hypocrite. Some people think of the church maybe as a Christian club. I've had a lot of people tell me they don't go to church anymore for those reasons. Because there's something about the church they just don't like. And I think that's more and more people. I think that that tribe of non-church-going Christians, if that's even a term, if that's even possible, is growing. So many Christians have been absenting themselves from church. Some of them really good friends of mine. And my other friends keep trying to get them to go back to church, find a church. And it's always the same answer. I was in a church, and it was such a mess, and so much bad happened, and I just can't drag myself to church anymore. So they're looking for the perfect church or the ideal church. But I always tell them there is no such thing. So just go to church and live with it and work with it. On the other hand, I want to say that I think church is not really optional. When I read the New Testament, I don't get a hint there of church being optional. Church is necessary. Church is God's gift to us. That's going to be one of my big ideas, as Kevin calls them. Church is not optional. It's not a support group. It's not where we go to find support for our already believed-in values and lifestyles or to have our grief assuaged, although that can happen, church is not optional for Christians. Now, there's another thing I want to mention, and you probably have known about this. There's such a phenomenon as church shopping. And now that most churches have websites, it's really easy to do. And I have to confess, when we were moving from Waco, Texas, to Aurora, Colorado, I did my fair share of church shopping. It was during COVID, and so we couldn't actually visit physically a lot of churches. They were either closed or we didn't want to expose ourselves. We didn't know if they all wore masks or whatever. So we did our church shopping, or I did most of it. We watched some church services you know, on the internet, live stream, as some are doing today, I assume. Church shopping. There's something funny about that phrase. You know, It kind of sounds like, go to the mall and go to this church in the mall and that church in the mall until you find one that has the products that you want. But for the question today, the question I have today for you and I want to try to answer it is, what would an ideal church look like? And Paul answers that in Ephesians 5.27. The future church that Christ is going to present to himself without spot or wrinkle. But we know there's no church like that on this earth, yet, until Christ returns. Now, unfortunately, the Bible nowhere spells out a doctrine of the church, but it does give us undeniable hints that guide us to a right understanding of church. 
That is God's idea of church. So that's what I mean when I talk about the ideal church is what's in the mind of God about his church? What would the church look like if it could live up to that ideal of the perfect church? Now, of course, throughout church history, there's been a great deal of dissension and more than just dissension, fighting among Christians about the church. Now, we could point up there next door. Where is it? Over there is a church, and down the street on Alameda is another church. We have three churches within blocks of each other, and why? Why are they all different? Why are there so many churches with different identities, different names, all kinds of things different about them, but all claiming to be Christian churches, if not the perfect church? What they mean is that they're closer to the perfect church than other churches. And that's why they exist. We moved here from Waco, Texas, which is sometimes called Jerusalem on the Brazos River. Because there are 100 Baptist churches in a city of less than 200,000 people. Can you imagine that? 100 Baptist churches. It's a church city. And yet, why would you need 100 Baptist churches, plus Methodist churches, plus Churches of Christ, plus Catholic churches, plus Pentecostal churches, all in one city. Why would that even be necessary? So we ask ourselves that. I ask myself, and I, I taught church history for many, many years. And as I look back over the ages of church history, I see some of the reasons why that happened, how that came to be. And I'm going to tell you, just out of interest to me, if not to you, that these three churches on Alameda Avenue have something in common. The Church of Christ, I think I'm pointing the right direction, I'm not sure, I'm looking out the window, I think it's over there. And down the other direction on Alameda Avenue is a uh, apostolic Christian church. You may have driven by it and wondered, what's that? Well, one time, when we had just moved here, and I think Becky was sick or helping our daughter with the grandchildren, we hadn't really started attending here, and I thought, I'm going to go visit that church because I don't know anything about it. So I just walked in on a Sunday morning and they were shocked to see a visitor. I could tell that. Um, but I just went and sat down in a back pew and eventually a man came and sat down next to me and I said, what's going to happen? What is this? And he explained it to me and, and I sat through the whole service and then they informed me I could stay for lunch on the grounds. It was a summer Sunday and I chose not to, but they have another service after lunch. So they're there most of Sunday at that Christian apostolic church or apostolic Christian church. They're Anabaptists, believe it or not, but they're a different branch of Anabaptists than Mennonites. Right there, I think, is Church of Christ. What do all three have in common? So all three of these churches, right in this one neighborhood, are examples of what in theology we call restorationism. And the idea of all three of those churches and many, many others, all Anabaptists included, is to restore the New Testament church. So when the Anabaptist movement began in the 1520s in Switzerland, they were people who withdrew from the state church because they believed that both Catholic and Protestant churches really had wandered far from what they read in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. And I grew up in a Pentecostal church, which was also restorationist. And we claim to be the most restorationist of all, because we spoke in tongues, and those other restorationists didn't. So the Church of Christ over here 
One way that they're restorationist is they don't have musical instruments in worship because you don't find them mentioned in the New Testament. And whenever I've talked to them, I said, I also don't find any brick buildings, churches in the New Testament, but you have them. Oh, well, it's their tradition. I'll let them have it. It's no big deal. They sing a cappella. Wonderful for them. And down the other way, Apostolic Christian Church, you know, what's distinctive about them? Well, the women sit on one side and the men sit on the other side. And I just hoped when I went in the sanctuary and sat down that I was on the right side because I was the only one in the sanctuary when I went in. And I was. I guessed rightly. I was on the right side. And there are some other distinctive things about them. But all of these churches and many, many more are trying to restore the New Testament church. That's what restorationism is. The difference between restorationists and other Christians is that restorationists, we, believe that the early church that we read about in the book of Acts was the adult, healthy church that fell away into sickness by becoming Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, and other things. So the Anabaptists said, we're going to go back and restore the church. The early church for us and other restorationists is the early church was the church that was healthy, strong, but got sick and needed to be made well. In fact, we needed to resurrect it in the 1520s. So that's what the Anabaptists did. Now, the, the other churches, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, Anglican, Church of England, and Episcopal, they say, no, the, no, no, the New Testament church was the church in embryo. It was meant to grow and change and develop. And so if you ever go to some of their churches that are highly liturgical, like the one on the cover of the bulletin, this is not an Anabaptist church, by the way, in case you knew, didn't know, if you look at the bulletin, I don't know who chose the picture, but that is not a Mennonite church. Most Mennonite churches are very plain because when we read in the New Testament about the church, we don't see it you know, looking like that at all. So the idea was simplicity, to get back to the simplicity of the early church, whereas other churches feel like the adornments and, and all of the decorations and all of the high liturgy, what I call the bells and smells of the Church of England, all of that was meant to come about, they believe. That the Spirit led them from being the church in embryo to being the adult church. So that's just for you to understand a basic difference, kind of a, kind of a watershed among all churches of all denominations. Among restorationists, there are Anabaptists like us, Mennonites, there are Pentecostals, there are churches of Christ. We have our differences, but our idea is the ideal church would be the New Testament church. The one we read about in the book of Acts. So that's just a little history and theology uh, lesson for you. And I want to ask what hints or clues does the New Testament give us about the true nature of the church? And by the true nature of the church, I mean as God sees it. As God wants to see it. What can we pull together from all the diverse things in the New Testament about the church into some kind of a picture? of the ideal church. Well, first of all, I want to say, and I'm sure, sure this won't surprise you, but we need to get back to thinking that the church is a gift. Paul asks the Corinthians in 4, 7, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you have not received? 
In other words, they were boasting about something. Those Corinthians, they were pretty boastful, prideful Christians. And they thought they had special powers and everything. And Paul was chiding them and saying, you have nothing to boast of. Because everything good comes from God. You don't have anything that you haven't received. And that's the first thing we need to realize about the church. It is a gift. The church has been given to us. It's from God. That takes a little while to sink in, I think, because we like to think that we built the church. The church is our doing. We brought this about, whether it be this congregation or the church universal, whatever it is. We built it up from below, but that's not true. The whole idea of the church is from God. And every good thing that happens in the church is from God. So we need to endlessly praise and thank God for the church in spite of its flaws. But also, and on the other hand, like everything else that's a good gift, there's a task that comes with it. So it's a gift with a task. And what is the task of the church? Well, it means studying and examining what God's idea of the church is in the New Testament. What does God say through the apostles and prophets, through Jesus, about the church? And keep working to conform ourselves as much to that as possible. Now, we have to realize that that task is never finished. We can never say, here, we've got it. We have the perfect church. Now, Becky and I had the wonderful experience of being in a church that was undergoing tremendous revival and people were flooding into the church. People were being saved and, and their lives transformed and, and you could feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. And yet, I was the assistant pastor and I knew too much. And I knew it wasn't the perfect church. In spite of all the wonderful things that were happening and we were so glad and happy about them, the task was to call people, to let the Holy Spirit purify them as they come into the church. Let the Holy Spirit guide and lead the church. And another thing the task calls for is commitment and involvement. Now I'm going to step on some toes. A lot of people who think of themselves as sincere, devoted Christians really don't go to church much. Now, when I was growing up, why do my grandchildren and daughters hate to hear that? Whenever I say when I was growing up, it's like, okay, stop. We don't want to hear that. I know you walked a mile to school in the snow every day. When I was growing up in church and in family, wherever we were, we found a church in that town on Sunday morning and went to it. Yes, on vacation. We would just find a church that we thought was kind of like what we believed in and go to that church. And I can remember there many times on family vacation sitting in a church and going, why are we here again? Oh, oh yeah, because it's a sin to miss church unless you can't help it. That's the way I was raised. When the doors were open, you were in church. And if you're out of town, you found a church whose doors were open. So commitment and involvement is part of the task. Responding in gratitude to the gift that God has given us. Another thing I want to say is that the essence of the church is fellowship. 
the essence of the church's fellowship. And this is one of the things I really enjoy about this church is our potluck Sundays. When we sit around table and eat together and share our lives together and talk together. And, and even during the prayer time on Sunday morning where people are free to speak out a word of testimony or a prayer request. There's a family fellowship kind of feeling. And I think that's what the early church had. In fact, in the book of Acts, it tells us that the early church came together in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost and shared all things in common. And there was no one in the church who wasn't taken care of. And when there were some who weren't being taken care of, the apostles appointed deacons to take care of them. And so taking care of each other. Well, I'll tell you that Acts 2, 43 through 47 passage that I just mentioned has always been a challenge to me. And I think to a lot of people because we look back at that and think, well, that's not realistic. We can't do that now. We live in such a different culture. We can't share all things in common. But what we can do is share what we have with others and say, you know, I have something that you might borrow. Your, your lawnmower broke down? Hey, I've got a lawnmower. I'll bring it over to your house. Hey, I heard that you've run out of grocery money for the month. Well, let's go to the table back there and let's come to my house. Let me bring food to your house. Let's eat together. One of the best books I've ever read on this subject is by the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer and it's called Life Together. If you want to read a classic book about the church and fellowship, fellowship as the essence of the church, read Life Together. It's based on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's time as the dean of an underground seminary during the Nazi era in Germany. And the seminary was eventually closed down by the Gestapo because it wasn't approved by the government and so forth. And we know the story eventually Dietrich Bonhoeffer was um, executed by the government for his involvement in the plot to overthrow Hitler. But life together tells us so much about what it was like for those young men to live together every day and to share their meals together, to hold each other accountable. So community and fellowship, those are extremely important for the perfect church, even if we can never have it completely and perfectly. Another thing about the church, as I read it in the New Testament, that's challenging is that the perfect church or a church growing toward perfection is an alternative community. An alternative community. A light set on a hill surrounded by darkness. And I think that's something that we easily forget and lose sight of. And the early Anabaptists were really big on this that they did not believe in cooperating with the secular powers of the government or allowing it to dictate things to the church, and that's why they were persecuted. But they also believed that it was the duty of the church to be transformed, as Paul talks about in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And I think what Paul was talking about was not just changing your mind, but living a different life than the world around you. Now, when I was growing up in a Pentecostal church, um, even having television was controversial. 
I didn't go to a movie till I was 20 years old, and I was sure God was going to strike me dead just for going in the movie theater. At home, we had a television sometimes, and then we didn't for a long time. Then we'd have a television, but boy, was it strictly governed as to what we could watch on television. Nothing worldly. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas and other theologian William Willimon wrote a book called Resident Aliens, in which they talked about Christians called by God to be resident aliens in the world, not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, not to give in to every fad and fancy of this world, but to stand apart, not in abusive ways, maybe telling me I couldn't go to a Billy Graham film because it was in a Hollywood movie theater was a little too much. But I have to tell you, I worry about any Christians who spent $600 to go down and see Taylor Swift and hear her sing. Am I stepping on toes? Probably. But that's part of what the pulpit is for. I'm not saying Taylor Swift is a bad person. I'm just saying... We Christians need to think hard and long about what's worldly and what we are called to step away and aside from that's worldly and not participate in that. Well, I have many other points about what the church is, but I want to skip down to finally, being the church in all the ways I've talked about and haven't had a chance to talk about means being Christ's presence in this world. That's the most important thing. And there's a shocking verse in the Bible that I think many people don't know is there, even if they've read the Bible all the way through. And it's in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul calls the church Christ. Now, if you say, oh, I don't believe you. I don't believe you, Olson. That just doesn't sound right to me. Why would he do that? That sounds like a heresy. Well, let me turn to 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And there he's equating Christ with the church. So it is with Christ, made up of many members who together are one body. Now what's the point there? Am I saying literally that we are Christ? No, that would be a heresy. But what I believe Paul is saying there is that the church is called and given the Holy Spirit to be the representation of Christ in the world. We are to be the witnesses to Christ by the way we live, witnessing in word and deed. This is talking about, Paul is talking about intimacy with Christ, that the church is to be intimate with Jesus Christ. Now, in our very individualistic society, we, we often think about the Christian life as one of Jesus and me. Me, intimate with Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ being intimate with me. We're friends, God and me. Yeah, but I think if you said that to Paul, he would say, don't forget the church. So we've all heard about how the coal taken out of the fire and set aside by itself eventually ceases to burn. And so it is with us and the church. If we don't participate, if we don't 
live the life the Holy Spirit wants us to live in the church together, our spiritual life will shrivel up and die. So just as a last word, a bit of testimony. When we were moving here two, two years ago, I guess it was, maybe a little bit more, Aurora, Colorado seemed like a pretty foreign place to us. Texas and Colorado aren't much alike. One is very flat, and the other one, only the eastern half is flat. But there's much more to it than that. It's culturally different. So we were a little worried, and we talked about church especially. We wanted to find a church that was quite a bit different from the one we went to in Waco, one where there was at least a desire to be the ideal church, continuing to grow and change, to be open to the Holy Spirit. And so I began to look at churches in Aurora, Colorado, all over the internet, and I'll bet I looked at 50 churches and their websites. And when we actually got here, we didn't really have one. We visited several, and I said, there's one up there on Alameda not far from our condo. Let's go visit it. What is it? It's Mennonite. What? Mennonite. So I insisted that we visit here. My wife wasn't reluctant. She didn't fight me on it, but maybe she was a little bit less certain about Mennonite. Now, I'd studied Mennonite history and theology a lot and kind of always thought I should be a Mennonite because I think the Mennonites and other Anabaptists come the closest to being the New Testament church in the world today. So I visited here, and you didn't have a pastor. And then we visited again. You still didn't have a pastor. And there were guest preachers preaching, maybe doing better than I'm doing right now, but still not quite there. So we didn't come for a while. We wandered in the wilderness of churches and visited and visited and visited. And God kept saying to me, go back to Peace Mennonite Church. So I looked on the website and I saw they had a new pastor named Kevin Santiago. And I emailed him and I said, what about this? What about this? What about? I'm sure I came on to him. <laughs> he probably thought, who is this character? And the Spirit led me to come back here. My wife didn't resist, but she probably wouldn't have come back on her own. Uh, but we fell in love. Lydia was the first person to greet us as we came in the door. Everybody greeted us. We sensed a spirit of fellowship here, even though attendance was like this when we first started coming. And of course, it's come back up a lot since COVID, except for today, of course. But we are so glad God led us here. But you know what? You're not a perfect church. And if you think you are, well, talk to me and I'll tell you where you're not. But there is none. There's no perfect church. But our task is to take the gift of the church and make it as close to the New Testament church and the coming church when Christ returns that Paul talks about and that we sang about as possible.